If you brought your Bible with you this morning, will you hold up the Word of God all over the building this morning? I want to ask you to join me, if you will, in the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 23. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, that's page 1110 in the Old Schofield Bible. And I want to read a verse here in a moment, and then I'm just going to kind of jump around this morning. I told the early service I'm going to be all over the place this morning. And so if you'll just bear with me, I sure hope that as we move along, you'll kind of get your mind in gear with where we're going with the message this morning. Luke chapter 23. Don't forget our service this afternoon at 5.30. Our prayer room is at 5.05. I hope you'll be here. Boy, we have so much to pray for. So many of our people are sick and uh, having things done. We just need to take it to God in prayer. And so we want to do that tonight and this afternoon. I hope you'll be here for that. The Gospel of Luke chapter 23. If you're there, would you say amen? All right, I want you to look this way, if you will. You know, over the past several Sunday mornings, we've been kind of being, we have been involved in a countdown. Uh, you know, each and every Sunday, I tell you how many days till this or how many days till that. Well, if you were to get your calendar out this morning and start counting, you'd find out that on today, February the 28th, that we are exactly 14 days away from daylight savings time. So in two weeks from last night or two weeks from early this morning, however you want to do that, uh, we will be moving our clocks forward an hour and you'll be going, you'll be losing an hour's sleep. So we had these nice chairs come and put in the church this week. So you could just come over here and sleep. So we want you to feel good as you sleep. So I hope you'll be here on Time Change Sunday morning. Uh, 14 days away from daylight savings time. We're only 20 days away from the first day of spring. Can I have an amen? And of course, it'll start snowing in the, in, when it gets springtime. And then we're actually only six Sundays or 42 days away from our celebration of the resurrection of our Savior. Seven, uh, six Sundays from today will be Easter. And you may remember that in these Sunday mornings leading up to Easter that we're involved in a series of messages that I've entitled Considering, Considering Calvary. Uh, it is in these Sunday mornings that we have been spending time, as it were, uh, at the foot of the cross. We are walking around Calvary's hill. We are watching the events of that fateful day unfold through the lens of the eyewitnesses of those who were there on that day. And if you'll join me in the Gospel of Luke chapter 23, I read one verse, verse 33 this morning, and we read these words. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. Calvary. Calvary, the place where time met eternity. Calvary is the place where heaven met hell. Calvary is the place where sin met grace. And Calvary is the place where God still meets man. Thank God for a place called Calvary. You know, as we have been walking around these Sunday mornings around the foot of the cross, there's a lot of things we could say about the day that Jesus was put to death on Calvary. For instance, this morning, we could talk a little bit about the crowds of Calvary. You know, there had to be massive crowds of people that were gathered outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem to a hill called Calvary the day that Jesus was put to death. We know from 
We know from time that Jesus, and from the Bible, that Jesus was put to death during the feast of the Passover. And, of course, the Passover was the feast that commemorated the, Israel, the exodus of Israel from the land of Egypt. And no doubt, from all over the world, Jews had made their pilgrimage to come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate that great occasion. No doubt, packed around Calvary that morning were thousands and thousands of people viewing all that was taking place on Calvary. Many of those people there that didn't even know Jesus that were just caught up in the curiosity of that moment. We could talk a lot about the crowds of Calvary. You know, as we continue to view Calvary, we could say much about the crowns of Calvary. We could talk about those who wore the crowns around Calvary and certainly played an important part in putting the, uh, the, to death the Lord Jesus Christ. I could talk about those who wore the official crowns of Rome, such as men like Pilate and Herod, and the hand that they had in putting the Lord Jesus to death on Calvary. We could talk about the crown that Jesus wore on Calvary. Jesus had declared himself to be the king of the Jews, and uh, to, to, to mock and ridicule him, they had given Jesus a crown, all right, but it wasn't a crown of fancy jewels and diamonds and of gold, but it was a crown made out of thorns. They crowned the Son of God on Calvary. We could talk about the crowds of Calvary. We could say much about the crowns of Calvary. But this morning, I want to talk a little bit about the cries of Calvary. Now, when I talk about the cries of Calvary, I'm talking about what the Lord Jesus said while he was hanging on the cross of Calvary. Now, we know that Jesus hung on the cross for six hours. From nine o'clock in the morning until three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus was on the cross. The first three hours of that time spent on the cross, Jesus was hanging in daylight for all of humanity to view him as he was put to death on the cross of Calvary. The last three hours that Jesus was on the cross was, was shrouded in a midnight, in a deep darkness as Jesus hung upon the cross. But Jesus was not silent for those six hours upon the cross because we know that Jesus made seven statements while he was on the cross of Calvary. Three of those statements he made during the daylight hours. Three of those statements he made during the dark hours. And one of those statements he made right before he died. Now we know that any time that Jesus was here on earth, we know that when he spoke, that he always spoke with power and authority. You know, the very night that they come to arrest the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, a band of Roman soldiers led by the, the treacherous act of Judas Iscariot was brought to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus and his disciples had, uh, had gone to to pray. And when those disciples that night came out with swords drawn in their hands and flaming torches to light up the night, Jesus looked at those soldiers and he said this, Whom seek ye? And those soldiers responded by saying, We seek Jesus of Nazareth. Well, when they said that, according to John chapter 18 and verse number 5, Jesus simply looked at those soldiers and said, I 
am he. Aren't you glad he's the great I am? I am he. And when Jesus said those three words, I am he, we read this in the next verse. The Bible said as soon as he said unto them, I am he, he spoke with such power, with such authority, he spoke with such force that those big Roman soldiers went backward and fell to the ground. Friend, I'll tell you, that's power. That is authority and that is force. You know, every time that Jesus spoke while he was here on this earth, his words were laced with power and authority. Truly did another group of soldiers say of the Lord Jesus on one occasion when they'd been, uh, they'd been sent by the religious authorities of that day to take Jesus, when they returned back to those religious authorities, here's what they said about Jesus. The, offer, uh, the officers answered and said, never a man spake like this man. I want to tell you that's so true while Jesus was upon the cross. Listen, he didn't speak out of delirium while he was hanging on the cross, but he had purpose and power behind every statement that he made while he was upon the cross of Calvary. Now I went through, there are seven of those statements, and I went through those seven statements that he said while he was on the cross. And as I considered those seven statements, I personally think that Jesus spoke from four different positions while he was hanging on the cross of Calvary. I think some of those statements Jesus made from the position of a Savior. Some of those statements that he made, he made from the position of a son. Some of those statements that he made, he made from the position of a sufferer. And some of those statements that he made, he made from the position of a sovereign. Now, obviously, in 26 minutes this morning, I can't discuss all of these seven statements. But what I'd like to do this morning, I'd like to take two of those positions this morning and two of those positions next Sunday morning and just talk a little bit about the cries of Calvary. The pitiful statements and yet the powerful statements that Jesus made while he was upon the cross. Now this morning I only want to talk about what Jesus said from the standpoint of a Savior and what Jesus said from the standpoint of a son while hanging upon the cross. Let's talk about first of all, let's talk about Jesus speaking from the standpoint as a the Savior. Now, when we consider and we take these things in the order in which they were made, we consider these seven statements. The very first two of those statements was made from the position of a Savior. Because the, the opening two statements that Jesus made both involved the matter of forgiveness. Aren't you glad we got a Savior this morning that is all about forgiveness? Even as he hung there upon the cross of Calvary, the very first two things that he said uh, involved the matter of our forgiveness. I thank God we have a forgiving Savior. He had a word of forgiveness, number one, about the murderers. I'm talking about the very people that was putting Jesus to death upon the cross of Calvary. As he arrived at Calvary and was raised up upon that cross, as the nails bit into his hands and in his feet, and as they raised that cross up and it slid down into that prepared holes, where those nails had him in his wrist and in his feet, no doubt as the bottom of that cross hit that hole, it came down with such force 
and such intensity that it jerked every bone in his body out of joint. Now we know that not a bone in his body was broken, but we also know from the force of that impact, it jerked every bone in the body of our Savior out of joint. So he's hanging there. He's just arrived at Calvary. The flies are buzzing around his head. His back has been laid open by the Roman cat of nine tails until his entrails are exposed. And those Middle Eastern flies are biting at the very flesh of the Son of God. Every time he raises himself up upon that cross, the ruggedness of that cross digs into those open wounds in his back and bites and stings with pain. And and yet, when he looked over those murderers, and yet, when he looked over that multitude, and yet, when he looked over that mob, he had words of forgiveness and words of compassion for the very people that was putting him to death upon the cross of Calvary. Now, you stop and think about his life. I'm not talking about his death. I'm just talking about his life. Jesus came into this world only to reveal God to humanity. He came to show us the Father's love for lost and sinful man. He came to cleanse leopards. He healed sick bodies. He fed hungry souls. He gave sight to the blind. He caused the deaf to hear. He raised dead people back to life. He gave purpose and meaning to those who thought that life was not worth living. Acts 10 38 simply sums up the life of the Savior in these words. He went about, he went about doing good. The whole time that he was here, he was doing good. And yet how did we treat the one who had come to do us good? We said that he was born of fornication. We called him a we said that he was filled with devils. He was ridiculed, belittled, doubted, and disbelieved. And then tragedy of all tragedies, he was taken out to a hill and nailed to a Roman cross. You know, I could have fully understood it that day if Jesus looking over the multitudes and the mobs and the murderers, I could have truly understood if he had been filled with anger and filled with resentment. I could fully understood if Jesus would have looked over that mob today and said, said something like this, you go ahead and laugh today, but I'll have the last laugh. I could have understood if he'd have said, go ahead, put me in the grave today, but I'll put you in hell someday. Or I could have understood if he'd have said this, this is your Golgotha, but I'll have my Armageddon. I could have understood if Jesus would have been filled with anger and resentment and bitterness, but no, none of that. The very first statement that Jesus made while he was hanging on the cross. If you look at verse 34 of our text this morning, he said this, Father, forgive them. The very people that was putting him to death on Calvary, he begged his father for their forgiveness. What a compassionate Savior. What a loving Savior. What a tender Savior. What a gracious Savior. Those very people who had nailed him to that cross, whose spit was dripping off his brow, who had plowed furrows upon his back, who had literally cursed him to his name, who had taken their hand and over and over and over again smacked him across the face. Jesus looked upon 
upon that crowd and then looked up to his father and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Well, I'll tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, what love. You know, for people who think that God is some kind of a tight-fisted, angry, heavenly being, some kind of deranged deity that sits up on the throne of heaven that's just waiting for us to mess up for so he can vaporize us and burn us in hell forever and ever. They don't understand the Bible. Hey, can I tell you something about our God? Can I tell you something about our Savior? He's far more interested in reconciliation than he is in retaliation. He's far more interested in forgiveness than he is punishment. Aren't you glad that our Bible tells us that God is long-suffering to us word. He's not willing that any perish, but that all come to repent. What a Savior. Thank God for forgiveness this morning. Aren't you glad you've been forgiven? Amen. I'm glad I don't have to worry about Armageddon because thank God I've been to Golgotha and I've been forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He had words of forgiveness. Watch this now. He had words of forgiveness for the murderers. But a second thing that he said was, uh, while he was there on the cross was not only words of forgiveness for the murderers, but he had words of forgiveness for the malefactor. That's right, look in our text. You know, sometimes if we're not careful, we have a tendency to forget that when Jesus was put to death on the cross that day, he was not the only one dying on the cross. There were two other men, one on the right hand, and one on the left hand that were put, being put to death on Calvary that day as well. Matthew in his gospel calls them thieves. But Dr. Luke in this text simply calls them malefactors. Now as a thief, we know what they were interested in. They were interested in your loot. But as a malefactor, the word malefactor means this. It means to cut. And we understand these guys wouldn't just take your loot they take your life. I mean, man, these guys were wicked. We would call them in our day cutthroats. We'd call them a bunch of thugs. This crowd here would not just take your life, uh, your loot, they would take your life. And when they got to Calvary, I'm talking about these two thieves, these two malefactors, when they got to Calvary that day and their cross was raised up beside the cross of the Son of God, they were laughing. They were mocking. They were ridiculing uh, Jesus the same way the murderers were. Over in Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 44, the Bible said the thieves also, both of them, plural, the thieves, both thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. They were saying the same things the mob, the multitude was saying. But in an amazing turn of events, one of these thieves had a change of heart. I don't know what it was, I don't know if it was the sights. I don't know if it was the sounds. I don't know if it was the sayings of Calvary. But something penetrated the cold, hard, calculating, callous heart of one of those thieves. Because in just a little while, that thief that in a moment ago was ridiculing and mocking Jesus in a change of heart, in an amazing turn of events, as the clock of his life ticked towards zero and the buzzer was about to sound. He said to the Lord Jesus, verse 42, Lord Jesus, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. What a statement. 
And Jesus, in verse 43, responded by simply saying, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Words of forgiveness for a malefactor. Boy, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad God can forgive old malefactors? I'm glad he can forgive multitudes and mobs. I'm glad he can forgive murderers. But I thank God he can also forgive the malefactors as well. By the way, can I stop and say this? Both of these thieves prayed while they were on the cross. Both of them prayed, but one prayed to save his skin and the other prayed to save his soul. Look in verse number 39. Here's the one who prayed to save his skin. Look at verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. In other words, he said, If you who you say you are, hey, you come down and get us down. You know what he wanted to do? He wanted to go right back to his old way of life. He wanted to get some more loot. He wanted to take some more lives. He was praying to save his skin. But that other one, buddy, I mean, he saw Jesus was who Jesus really was. He'd been listening to what he said. He saw graciousness and compassion and tenderness in the Savior. And buddy, it wasn't about saving his skin. It was about saving his soul. And he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said, today, son, we'll be together in paradise. Words of forgiveness. Well, I'm glad if you'll come to Jesus this morning. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It don't matter who you've been with, what you've said. It don't matter how black and sinful and sordid your past may be. Aren't you glad we got a Savior that when we cry out to God, even if it's in the last moments of life, by the way, by the way, don't wait that long. Don't wait that long. Too many people, uh, they think, well, I'll wait till my deathbed to get saved. But listen, you hear me and hear me well. Too many people in our day are too drugged up to get saved on their deathbed. You need to get saved today. But aren't you glad even in the, I, I like what old Spurgeon said about this. Spurgeon said, hit this old thief and blew the smoke in the face of the Savior of a wasted life. And yet Jesus in mercy and compassion and tenderness forgave him anyway. What a Savior. He had nothing to offer. I thought about how this, how this one conversion experience refutes so many things. You know, all over America this morning, you can walk into churches, and uh, so-called churches, and they'll, they'll teach you about soul sleep. You know, you die, you go to the grave, and you stay there till Judgment Day. But Jesus told this old thief today, right now. In other words, when we breathe our last, we're out of here, you're going to be with me. Amen. Uh, it refutes soul sleep. It refutes water baptism for salvation. I mean, this old thief, Jesus didn't say, hold on, if we're going to go to heaven, we got to get down off his cross right quick. Let's go get baptized. None of that. It refutes the notion that you got to be baptized to go to heaven. Now, I think you ought to be baptized if you're going to heaven. But aren't you glad God will take you dry clean if that's the way you want to go? And, but he will, you will have to answer for it at the judgment seat. Yes, sir. It refutes water. It refutes salvation by works. He couldn't get off the cross and go give money to the Melvin family. Hey, he couldn't turn over new leaf in life. His life was over. He had nothing to offer. But aren't you glad salvation is not rooted in the, in the merits of man. It's rooted in the mercy of God. Amen. Salvation is not a gift uh, for the guilty. It's a reward for the righteous. Aren't you glad God in mercy and compassion will say to you, I forgive you. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. I said that, say this. He's speaking as a Savior. He spoke as the Savior. Words of forgiveness. 
But then secondly, we find that Jesus not only spoke as a Savior, but he also spoke as the Son. I want you to sit up now and listen to me for just a moment. Jesus on that cross had a word for his mama, his mother, and he had a word for his father. Now we know from the record of the four Gospels that while Jesus was on that cross, the last thing he said before the lights went out, the third statement that Jesus made on the cross was when he looked at his mother, he had something to say to his mama. Can I stop and say this? It's obvious to me that Mary would be there. You know, I think Joseph probably would have been there. Most people think that by the time Jesus went to Calvary that Joseph had died. Joseph is not present at Calvary. Most people think he's dead. But it's obvious that his mother would be there at Calvary because if there was anybody who knew who he was, it was his mother. You see, she is the one who had been visited by the angels. She was the one who was told that she, as a virgin, would conceive the Son of God. She had watched that boy. She knew him like no other knew him. She had grown up. He had grown up in her sight. She had never heard one word of rebellion. She had never heard one word of disrespect fall from the lips of the Lord Jesus. She was there the night he was born. She heard about the angels. She, she was visited by the shepherds. She knew exactly who Jesus was. It was obvious she would be there at the cross. And yet, from the cross, John, we're told, Jesus, we're told, had a word for John. And that word for John was, John, behold thy mother. Jesus, watch this now, left his mother in the care of the apostle John. And John, we're told, gathered up Mary and led her away from the cross probably no doubt weeping bitter tears as she was led away, but he led her from the cross. You know what Jesus was doing? He was making provision for his mother. He was taking care of his mama. He charged John to care for his mother. But also while he was on the cross, talking to his mama, he not only made provision for her, but he made protection for the church. You see, Jesus knew the church would soon be born. And he knew the church would soon be corrupted. One of Rome's dogmas is that Mary is a co-redemptrix with Jesus. As I understand it, in the city of Rome, there's a church there called Mary Major. And in the courtyard of that church, there's a crucifix. There's a cross. And on one side of that cross is the Lord Jesus hanging on that cross. But on the other side of that cross is Mary, the mother of Jesus, hanging on that cross. Thus they're saying she is a co-redeemer with Jesus. But well did the Lord know that when he was on that cross, the devil would try to corrupt his church by making Mary, the mother of Jesus, a co-redeemer with him. So with the stroke of only four words, Jesus said this to his mama. He said, woman, behold thy son. And with those words, he placed a distance between her 
and himself, referring to her as a woman, a term of respect, but not as a mother, a term of relationship. Jesus was telling us, if you're going to get to heaven, there's only one person, one mediator, one go-between that can get you into heaven, and it's not Mary, it's not Peter, it's not James, it's not the Pope. If you're going to go to heaven, you got to come through Jesus. He's the only way to God. That's the reason we read these words right here. The Bible said in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 4, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. I just want to tell you, you can't get to heaven through the Baptist church or the Methodist church or any other church, but you can't go to heaven through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only way there, friend. He's the only mediator between God and man. He had a word for his mama. Behold thy son. But then he had a word for his father while he was on the cross. We also know in the fourth statement that Jesus made from the cross, it is now dark. God, as it were, has pulled a veil, a crepe, over the sun. And out of that darkness, Jesus made the only statement that is repeated twice in the four Gospels. All of the other statements that he made from the cross are only repeated one time in each of the four Gospels. But in, in this fourth statement that he made to his father, he, it is repeated not only in the Gospel of Matthew, but also the Gospel of Mark as well. And here's the statement. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I find it interesting that the first statement that Jesus made on the cross was to his Father. The last statement that he made on the cross was to his Father. But even the middle statement, the first, the middle, and the last statement that he made upon the cross or cried from the cross was made to his Father. And he calls his Father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me. Now we know that Jesus is a man of sorrows and he is acquainted with grief. He lived his whole life on this earth and he knew what it was to be forsaken. I mean, it seemed like from the time he began his earthly ministry up until the time he was put to death, he was forsaken by this one he was forsaken by that one. For instance, he was forsaken by his family. Do you know the Bible tells us in John 7 and verse number 5 that his own brothers and sisters didn't even believe that he was who he said he was? He was forsaken by family. He was forsaken by followers. In John chapter 6 and verse number 66, the Bible says from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Family left him. Followers left him. The Bible said on the very night that he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane that all the disciples forsook him and fled. He was left by family. He was left by followers. He was left by friends. But strange enough, he was even forsaken by his own father. While Jesus was hanging upon Calvary's dark, rugged brow, his own father forsook him. You say, preacher, how? I tell you, I have a son. My son is here this morning. I have two and a half grandsons and a granddaughter. 
I have two daughters. I, I, my wife, my in-laws are here. And I got to tell you, if somebody was trying to kill my son and there was something I could do about it, I wouldn't be running from the fight. I'd be running to the fight. If my son was being treated as cruelly and as harshly as Jesus was being true, I'd take every gun I had. I'd gladly give my life to try to prevent his life from being taken. But did you know on Calvary, God, as it were, turned away from his own son and refused to help his own son while he was on the cross of Calvary? You say, preacher, how can it be? Well, we understand that while Jesus was on the cross, he was being made our sin. He, was become, he just didn't bear our sins at Calvary. I said this last Sunday, he became our sin on Calvary. So watch this. Every old dirty word you've ever said, every old dirty thought you've ever had, all that so-called innocent flirtation down at the office, all of that stuff on your phone, all of that garbage that's in the past of your life that you don't want nobody to know about, Jesus became that when he was on Calvary. And as, as becoming our sin, we know that sin separates. Sin is the great divider. Sin is the great separator. For instance, sin separates husbands from wives and wives from husbands. Sin separates children from parents and parents from children. Sin separates brothers from brothers and sisters from sisters. Sin separates man from man and woman from woman. But the greatest separation that sin brings, sin brings separation from God. Sin separates us from God. And when Jesus was becoming, becoming our sin on the cross, God separated himself, distanced himself from his own son, Jesus, hanging on the cross. Oh, what love. You know, I find this to be interesting. Did you know through all of the physical sufferings that Jesus went through before Calvary and on Calvary, he never opened his mouth about any of those things? Not one time when they lashed him did he say, Ouch! That hurts! I mean, it's untolerable. He kept quiet about the physical sufferings. He kept quiet about the emotional suffering. As all that crowd began to jeer him and mock him and taunt him and cry to him to come down if you're really who you say you are. Jesus stayed quiet during all the emotional suffering. But I find it interesting that in the hour of his greatest suffering, I'm talking about spiritual suffering, Jesus couldn't stay quiet about it. Jesus opened his mouth, looked up to heaven, raised himself up upon that cross, and he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? On that cross, Jesus lost the presence of God. Can I tell you something? Any time a nation loses the presence of God, it is indeed a cost that cannot be calculated. Our, our nation is heading in a direction today. This new administration, you don't have to ever come back if you don't like what I'm about to say, but you need to hear it while you're here. But this new administration that we have just taken into the United States of America is going to take us in a direction that we never needed to go. 
Our nation right now is trying to distance itself from God. Brother, I'm telling you, if we ever lose the presence of God upon this nation, we indeed have lost. Uh, it is a de indeed a tragedy, and we have incurred a loss that cannot be calculated. Listen, we could lose our allies, we'd be all right. We could lose our assets, we'd be all right. We could lose our armaments, we'd be all right. But if we ever lose our almighty, stick a fork in us, crank the bus, Turn out the light. Let the fat lady sing. Brother, it's over. It's done. We're finished if we lose the presence of God. And on the cross of Calvary, Jesus lost the presence of God. Look, Jesus forsook. He forsook heaven. The Bible said in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... He became poor. Jesus forsook power. Jesus forsook prestige. Jesus forsook position. He forsook only to come to this earth to be forsaken. Oh, my soul, how much he loved you and how much he loved me. He was, he was, he was abused by man. He was abhorred by Satan, and he was abandoned by God, and I'm done. You say, preacher, why? Why in the world, in the hour of his greatest need, would God forsake his own son? Well, here's my answer to that question. I believe with all my heart that God forsook Jesus so that he would never have to forsake us. Amen and amen. Jesus died alone so that you and I wouldn't have to live alone. And to put it bluntly, Jesus died forsaken so that God could look at you and men say, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You know what? God was just saying, I love you. I hate your sin with a passion. I hate what it's done to my son, but I just want you to know I love you so much I'd rather die than live without you. Can I conclude it by saying this? Jesus was temporarily forsaken on the cross so that you and I would not have to be eternally forsaken by God. Jesus spoke as the Savior words of forgiveness. Jesus spoke as the Son words of of abandonment, and he did all that just so he could demonstrate his love for you and for me. Hey, you may die and go to hell unsaved. In fact, listen, if you don't get saved, you will die and go to hell. But I want to tell you this, while people die and go to hell unsaved, nobody ever dies and goes to hell unloved. And if you go to hell, you're going to have to step over the love of God to get there, friend. God loves you that much. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I pray this morning.